2: In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Carol G. Juan Gabien. Christina Aguilera.
5: What do these three have in common?
6: I'm about to make your holidays even happier. Get the Epson EcoTank cartridge-free printer because you know it's not festive? Cartridge conniptions. Those panic freakouts that happen when those pricey ink cartridges run out at the worst possible time. Like when you're halfway through printing your holiday cards. With Epson EcoTank, kiss expensive cartridges goodbye. This printer has big ink tanks and comes with a ridiculous amount of ink. So you can just fill and chill all season long. Now that's Mary epson ecotank learn more at epson.com slash all ball with doug
0: meet anna delvey you may think she's an audacious entrepreneur or a complete con artist but there's one thing about anna you're never sure about who is she created and produced by shonda rhimes inventing anna is about the legendary german heiress and media sensation anna delvey who steals the hearts of the new york social scene along with a lot of their cash Don't miss the new limited Netflix series inspired by the incredible true story of Anna Delvey. Watch Inventing Anna, February 11th, only on Netflix.
6: When you're ready to place a bet on today's games, do it with the most trusted name in online sports betting, BetRivers Sportsbook. Now legal in several states and growing. BetRivers Sportsbook delivers a unique sports betting experience featuring live streaming sports, in-game wagering, fast authorizations on most withdrawals, and gold standard customer service. Go to BetRivers.com, see for yourself, must be 21, and be present in Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, and Pennsylvania to play. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, welcome in. I'm Doug Gottlieb, and this is All Ball, where we have a great conversation with Dan Grunfeld, who, of course, is Dad Ernie, part of the Bernie and Ernie show, played in the NBA, GM in the NBA, and was the GM of the Bucks the last time they went to the Eastern Conference Finals. Dan will join us momentarily, and I think you'll love the conversation about his life, his career, his upbringing. And his new book that he wrote about his family and their dramatic journey to uh, to success in America. But before you get to that, let me just kind of give you my quick thoughts on the NBA Finals. I I want to tell you the best team won, but they didn't. The best, te- healthiest team that was standing won. But that is sports, right? That is sports. That's how sports works. Whoever's healthiest, who's ever eligible, at the end of the day. They win, they get the spoils, they get to talk shit. That's the way it goes. And that was the Bucs. They were dead to rights beaten against the Nets. They'd be beat by 40 in game two. And then Kyrie sprains his ankle. Of course, uh, James Harden was already hurt, and they lose because Kevin Durant has his foot over the line in at the end of regulation in uh, in game seven. But When they're full strength, there's no question the Nets appear to have been better and a good matchup for the Nets against the Milwaukee Bucks. I don't think they beat the Clippers. I don't think they beat the Lakers, but I don't think it matters because they beat the teams they had to beat and they won the championship and Giannis made 17 out of 19 free throws. It doesn't make Giannis' Giannis' free throw fix complete. It doesn't mean the Bucks are the best team historically in the NBA. They're going on a run. It just means they won the tournament and they get the trophy. That's what it means. Crazy, though, right? Mike Boonholzer was about to be fired. Now, all of a sudden, they're NBA champions. And it takes the National Guard to get him out of there. Um, the other part is, you know, I've I've long told people that the new rules, you know, when I say new, I mean last 15, 20 years of existence in the NBA, they actually help non-shooters that can huge bodies play downhill more so than they even help shooters. LeBron James, before he was more of a shooting guy. And now what you're do, able to do with Giannis. I guess that that even points out even more what's lacking in Ben Simmons' game. But these guys getting downhill, playing with angles, getting by you, using their body to fend you off and attacking the defense, that's the new basketball. All right, without further ado, let's get to our interview. Here's Dan Grunfeld, Stanford alum, who joined me to talk about his journey through basketball. All right, so let, let's do this. Let Let's start with like growing up like so uh, my basketball background, obviously, my dad was not your dad as a player, um, but he was player then high school coach, then college coach. And I was born in Wisconsin. We was a head coach. He did Milwaukee. Then he moved along to uh, Orange County when he was an assistant Long Beach State. When uh, when you were born, where were you born exactly?
3: In uh, northern New Jersey. So Livingston, New Jersey. OK, OK.
6: Um, So where was your dad? What was your dad doing when you were born?
3: My dad was a player for the Knicks. And actually, so my birth was scheduled around two of his road trips because my parents wanted my dad to be there for my birth, but also for my bris, right? Which happens eight days later. And so the Knicks schedule was that there were two road trips. And so uh, the first road trip was in Texas. And that's the trip where Bernard King had 50 points back to back nights. (laughs) Um, in Dallas and San Antonio. So we had those legendary games and then my dad came home and, for my birth and yeah, he was a player for the Knicks. Um, so what's
6: your first memory? Obviously, like, did you remember any of the Knicks stuff and your dad as a player stuff when you were a kid or is it more what people have told you?
3: More what people have told me from his playing career because he retired when I was two. So it's still a little little young for me. My sister's three years older. She's five. She was five. So she remembers, but I don't remember him as a player. Uh, but obviously he was then uh, executive and general manager for many years, so my whole childhood was around the Knicks. So, but really, my first memories are in Madison Square Garden. But he just wasn't playing anymore. I, I tell people. So
6: my dad had a guy named Kurt Taji, who wore 44 at UWM. And there's other reasons I wore 44, but that was like the, he was. I thought he was the coolest guy, and I became. I thought the number was cool. Who was your first like Nick that you fell in love with when you were a kid? John Stars.
3: You know, and, and there were a lot of players who i love, but really John, like, cause I was a shooting guard growing up and he was a shooting guard and he just played the game with so much passion and heart. And I was in such a privileged position that I knew him, you know, so I would see him at practice and we would talk and like, man, he would just, he would set Madison square garden on fire. Like every other team, in the league hated him. Right. Because he was, you know, he would talk smack and he was like a little bit brash, but man, I just love John Starks.
6: Yeah. He's, he obviously an Oklahoma state alum as well. Kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, well, I, I always find it fascinating. I was having a, I have a buddy named Brian Montanati. He's joined me on the pod. He's uh, played with me at Oklahoma State. He played 10 years in Italy. And um, he's, in a, he's a high school coach now in, in Oklahoma. And we were trying to describe to people, like, why our group? Because 95, they made the Final Four. I wasn't in that group. 2004, they made the Final Four. I wasn't in that group. We made the Elite Eight, but we never won the league. And yet, our group is way more popular, I think, now than kind of any other group outside maybe a big country, right? And I was trying to express to people like, just sometimes there's unique groups that come together that fans fans get with. I feel like, and part of it is they did go to the NBA Finals. I feel like that era of the Knicks is like that, right? Where they didn't actually win the championship. They never really won anything. But there's there's something about John Starks. There's something about um, Anthony, the late Anthony Mason, yeah. right? There's something about those guys that Knicks fans gravitated towards more than just the fact that they actually got to an NBA Finals.
3: 100%. It, the spirit that they played the game with just resonated, man. And New York is blue collar, you know, working, you know, hard work, toughness, and that's how they played, you know, and, and and that kind of grit and determination, like people just love those teams and they were good and they did have success, but it was more than that. It was the heart and soul of the city, you know? And so like for me growing up, like having kind of backstage access to that was amazing. But all my friends in Northern New Jersey, everyone just loved the Knicks, man. Cause it was just like, you could get behind that. You know what I mean?
6: Yeah. How did you, how did you deal with that? Like, cause all, as much as they got behind things, when things are not that good, um, Knicks fans especially kids like kids because kids echo the sentiments of their parents and what the parents say you know in their own homes but a lot of times kids don't have the filters that parents have right when they're out kind of in public how did you deal with that
3: yeah I mean you, you kind of have to learn early that that comes with the territory but it's not pleasant and it's not easy like I would always have kids at school be like Nick suck or you know like this and that and like yeah dude like it's not fun. And I think it makes like, and I have a lot of other friends who kind of grew up around the NBA It makes families kind of insular, you know, cause you, you rely on each other and you become very close. And so my, my parents were really great with me and just always, always told me like, you know, you're going to have a lot of friends and people who care about you for who you are. And like, those are the people that you want to like bring in closer and trust. And there's going to be a lot of people who might not know you as well and who might say things, but always trying to make me understand that like, it wasn't, it wasn't personal. It wasn't about me. It was just kind of how people are, but yeah, man, it's, it's tough. Like, there's a lot of perks that come with, with having like a a famous dad or access to really cool things. But yeah, there's, there's a lot that comes with, and let alone like the media, you know, you'd, you'd wake up in the morning with, you know, your dad's, you know, face on the cover of the paper, you know, being criticized and things like that when they're not winning. And then of course, when they're winning, it's, it's a different story. Right. But uh, yeah, those things are tough to deal with, particularly for a young kid. How old were you when, when he took the Bucks job? So I was 15. So uh, he he was let go in New York, my freshman year in high school, and they actually went to the finals. So he had traded for Latrell Sprewell and Marcus Camby, and it didn't quite work out at first. He was let go, and then it worked out in an amazing fashion. He was already gone, right? But uh, he, he then got hired by the Bucks, And so I moved from New Jersey to Milwaukee, my sophomore year, which seems really random, but my mom is from Milwaukee. So I would visit there every summer. And my, my mom and dad met when my dad was playing for the bucks. Right. So like my family had this history in Milwaukee, so it wasn't like as random as you would think, but still tough to like at that age, when you're in high school, trying to like come into your own to move, like it was a tough thing.
6: Okay. So let's go back for, for a second because yeah. What, what was your dad like during those times? Like it's, I think the hardest thing, there's a lot of hard things about parenting, which you're, you're going to learn. Um, mine a little bit older, um, but it's how you process work stress and home life, right, is got to be, you know, especially at a very public job. And then the Knicks go to the finals and he got fired. Like, what was what was your recollection of what he was like during those times?
3: Yeah. You know, listen, my dad is an amazing person, but he's an amazing father, right? So his first priority has always been his family. And he always tried to like insulate us from all the pressures of his job. And so he also, and I said this before, like he has very big shoulders, literally and figuratively, like he's a massive guy, but he he knows that his, in his position, you have to take a lot of that, right? So uh, he he tried to really bear the brunt of all, all the kind of stress and disappointment, but that's not to say that there wasn't a lot of stress and disappointment. I mean, and we'll probably get into this more later, but like my dad grew up as an immigrant in New York city, watching the Knicks and the nosebleeds, not even being able to speak English. Right. So then not only did he play for the Knicks, but he ran the whole team. So that, that was, you know, it was a very hard thing for, for him, I know, and for our family, but it's, it's also the nature of the business. And, you know, luckily he, he got an opportunity right away with an awesome team in Milwaukee and they went to game seven of the Eastern conference final. So his career just really took off after it. And everything happens for a reason so you know it, it was a t- tough time man but he tried to insulate us as much as he could okay so you get
6: to wisconsin you're a guy from a jury Jer- you're, you're a jew from jersey with a, with a jersey accent I right? what was yeah. all your last three years of high school like?
3: amazing honestly man like like i was so lucky to go to i went to a top public high school in milwaukee Nicollet high school which actually is a basketball powerhouse now um uh, you know, just sent Jalen Johnson to Duke and uh, you know so it's it's a, it's a great school basketball school and it was a strong school then uh, amazing place to kind of you know grow as a basketball player and as a student and so it, it was it took an adjustment right when you move you have to make new friends and figure it out but you know I when I when we got to Milwaukee I was like 510 145 pounds I had played freshman basketball in New Jersey so like you know I thought I you know I had good Skills and I knew my dad was really big, my mom was big, and the doctors kind of said, like, this kid's going to be pretty big. So I knew I kind of had a growth spurt in me, but uh, I just didn't know what I would become as a basketball player, right? So, I mean, I started varsity as a sophomore, but you know, I averaged like seven points a game. I was 6'2, 165, but then I'm 6'4, 185, and then I'm 6'6, 205. And you know, by my senior year, I'm a top 100 player, and you know, Stanford was kind of knocking on the door. And so my kind of ascension happened quickly, but I don't think, I'm not sure it could have happened if I didn't go to Milwaukee, honestly.
6: Do you do you? What were kids like to you? And I I ask you this because I think one of the hard things um, I stayed back because I had that I had a growth spur. Obviously, people like me had a gross spur. You're six feet tall. <laughs> I was like five foot five one when I finished eighth grade the first time. Then I was like five nine five ten when I entered high school. Right. So during that right. year and three months, massive growth spurt. Um, But there was always a I thought a group. And my high school was really, it was very good for public high school as well coached. We had a lot of success. Um, but I always felt like there was a group of the more popular kids that weren't as accepting of me because I didn't grow up there. You know, mm-hmm. I grew up even five miles away, but I didn't even grow up there. For you, you grew up in Jersey. You don't have sweat equity with these kids. Was right. did, you, did you ever feel like there was any animosity towards you kind of parachuting in and becoming a basketball star?
3: honestly man not at all and I think it speaks to the community that I moved to like people in the Midwest are just like very accepting nice people and like I really found that I, they, they accepted me with such open arms truthfully man I never had I never felt a lot of that you know pushback maybe it was happening I was just oblivious to it but like no it was it was it was all love like people embraced me they tried to help me feel comfortable and like basketball as you know like it's the universal language it's the vehicle like I just started playing hoops and making friends that way and you know that 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 really kind of just helped me kind of assimilate and yeah the community was like so accepting so uh, i have nothing but fond memories about my time in milwaukee were you guys in whitefish bay where were you so we were in fox point so i went to nicolay high school but my mom went to whitefish bay high school so you know the area well like you know that's uh, right outside the city of milwaukee
6: yeah it's pretty pretty awesome uh who was your favorite buck during those
3: years Man, those years were so awesome. The, the answer's easy, okay? It's Ray Allen. Um, but but I have to think because they're so just of that team, right? Because you had the big dog and you had Sam Cassell, and I love Tim Thomas. But, dude, like Ray Allen, you know, this is when Ray is 24, 25 years old. Like, just an absolute superstar in the making. Like, not only could shoot the ball, which everyone knows, but he was so explosive.
6: Crazy athlete. Crazy he, athlete. We, we played
3: against him. When he was at UConn, we played against
6: him. And a couple of things I remember. So um, he had the biggest calves I had ever seen, like yeah. like normal sized legs, maybe even skinny legs. And then he's like, if you could carve out a granite what somebody's calves are supposed to look like, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. And then he drove to the middle and what we were doing was, we did it against Villanova, didn't work either where.
0: When you drive a vehicle so reliable, it's backed by a 10 year, 100,000 mile limited warranty. You stop thinking about what you can't do
8: I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Do you love Selena? Like, really love?
5: Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano.
4: To start listening.
6: Uh, I was guarding like Deron Shepherd. who's was like a foot taller than me. And every time Ray would put the ball on the ground, I was going to go and almost like double the ball. And so he comes off a curl, like a, a pin down on the weak side. I go in kind of almost to help. And he goes up, like double, almost like triple clutches, and then shoots the ball. Like People forget <laughs> what a freak athlete he was because their snapshot of Ray Allen is, well, Miami Heat, Ray Allen, or Boston Celtics, Ray Allen, where he had made himself into one of the league's best shooters. They forget that that's like Ray Allen 2.0, 1.0. He did a little bit of everything.
3: Everything, slashing, in transition, I mean, dunking the ball. Like, he was such a monster. And culturally, like, he got game had just come out, you know, just a few years before. And so I was like, man, like, for all those reasons, I just love Ray. And then because my dad's a GM of the team, like I'm working out at the practice facility, I get to know him. And as great of a basketball player as he is, he's a better guy, the nicest guy in the world, such a role model for me. Um, and so like, I just looked at, and again, like someone who played that position, that shooting guard position, right? So in New York, it was like John Starks and then Alan Houston. And then it was Ray in, in Milwaukee. He learned so much from watching him and all those other guys. And, you know, they, again, like they lost game seven, 2001 in the Eastern conference finals to Philly. Right. But, they had a chance. I mean, they were knocking on the door. So, like, those were those were awesome years.
7: Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at FoxsportsRadio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live.
6: Um, okay, so why did you choose Stanford? Batterer Sportsbook wants to invite you to discover the complete sports betting experience. The foundation of that experience is a massive number of betting options on nearly every regulated sporting event around the world. Add on top of that, live streaming of sports every day. There's almost always a live match to watch on BetRivers Sportsbook right in your phone. BetRivers features top-tier customer service, ready to answer your questions anytime, day or night. Plus, they have this unique rush pay system, and BetRivers Sportsbook can authorize most withdrawal requests instantly. Customer satisfaction is always our number one priority, and BetRivers will match your first deposit up to $250. Now, unlike some other sportsbooks, BetRivers only requires a one-time pay-through to turn bonuses into cash, so you're going to experience the difference. Just go to BetRivers.com. You'll see it for yourself. You must be 21. You must be present in Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, or Pennsylvania to play. You got a gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Remember, BetRivers Sportsbook. It's the place. Just go to BetRivers, B-E-T-R-I-V-E-R-S.com. I don't know about you. But I feel like I'm printing nonstop through the holidays. All right? You got cards, gift tags, lists, cookie receipts, mostly cookie receipts. Plus, you got travel docs as well. You know, you got to get those reimbursements. And nothing will ruin the fun like good old-fashioned cartridge conniption. That's when your printer's pricey ink cartridges run out of ink at the worst possible time. And you can't help but lose it a little. Or a lot. It's frustrating. But all ball community. You know what we do around here. We bring you tech solutions. And the Epson EcoTank cartridge-free printer is a great solution. Epson EcoTank uses big ink tanks and comes with a ridiculous amount of ink. Go ahead. Add some people to your holiday card list. No more running out of magenta when you're trying to make the season merry. No more having to apologize to your house guests after having a total cartridge conniption. With Epson EcoTank, kiss expensive cartridges goodbye. You can just fill and chill who doesn't want some more chill around the holidays? Epson EcoTank. Learn more at epson.com slash Doug.
0: Meet Anna Delvey. She inspires loyalty in some, contempt in others, and obsession in everyone she meets. Anna is an audacious entrepreneur. Or maybe she's a complete con artist. But there's one thing about Anna you're never sure about. Who is she? Introducing Inventing Anna, a new limited series on Netflix. It's the story of the legendary German heiress and social media sensation Anna Delvey, who steals the heart of the New York social scene, along with a lot of their cash. But is Anna Delvey a brilliant businesswoman or a total fake? One journalist is determined to find out the truth. Inventing Anna, created and produced by Shonda Rhimes, featuring Julia Garner as the mysterious Anna Delvey and Anna Klumsky as Vivian, the reporter tracking down Anna's true identity. Watch Inventing Anna, February 11th, only on Netflix.
3: So I wanted to go to Stanford since I was in seventh grade. So my sister's older than me and and my grandmother lives in the Bay Area. So when we were visiting her, we visited Stanford's campus for my sister to take a tour. And Stanford was like, number four in the country at the time, great academics. And I was a good student. And I said, man, and it was close to my grandma who I'm, I'm like, I, you know, talk to every day. So like, this is where I want to play. But as you said, I'm a, you know, I'm a slow Jewish kid from the suburbs. Like, you know, odds aren't amazing for me, but you know, just kept kind of grinding, putting my head down working and um, really kept my eyes set on that. And even like, as I started getting recruited, like my AU coaches and all that, they told people like, he wants to go to Stanford, you know? So the Ivies recruiting me and other good kind of academic schools, but it was always about Stanford and, you know, you have to, you have to be good in some ways, but you also have to be lucky. And I had a little bit of both those things where like I played well, but I also played well at the right times. And, you know, they, uh, Stanford went to the final four in 98. So, and they were like number one in 2001, right when I was getting recruited. So they were like a top, top program. And like, so it wasn't like a a shoe in for someone like me to go there, but it it just worked out for me, man. And I I couldn't be more, more happy about it. It It's just such an awesome experience.
6: Okay. So you get to Stanford, who's there?
3: On the team, so Josh Childress is a year older than me, um, and he's he's really our, our our best player. But honestly, like we had a lot of very good, but not like great great players who then would go to the NBA. So guy like Matt Loddick right now uh, is the coach of Valparaiso, right? Matt was we were playing the same position. He was two years older than me, so kind of took me under his wing a little bit. Uh, you know, Julius Barnes was a very good All Pac-10 player who had a you know nice career in Europe. So there were guys who are just like really really solid, but Mike Montgomery was the coach and he built a system man that was so efficient he he recruited tough skilled smart people who played together and like we were first or second in the Pac 10 at that time for for 8 years in a row like it was just a powerhouse and so like my my freshman year we were a four seed and my sophomore year we we started the season 26 and 0 and we're a one seed like it was it was really a roller coaster man Yeah that was I mean
6: that was like the dream year right your your sophomore year was was the was the dream year. That was the year.
3: That was the game. Wasn't Tiger at the game against Arizona? So Doug, that, so we were 19 and right? right. We're playing Arizona. Keep in mind. Okay. Arizona starting five, Mustafa Shakur, Salim Stoudemire, Hassan Adams, Andre Iguodala, Channing Fry. Okay. They're all NBA players. One of them's the finals MVP. And then you have Stanford. We have Josh Childress, but all good role players. We beat them in Tucson when we were, th- we were four and they were three in the country. Now we're two and they're 19 and we're, We're not, I think, no, there were 12 and we're 19 and 0, right? We, we make a shot at the buzzer, a half court shot to win the game to become 20 and 0 Tigers courtside. And it was my 20th birthday. So, so I'll never forget. Like it was my birthday, dude. And we just had this magical, magical thing going on. What, um, I've always heard Stanford is, is just different.
6: This is different in a, in a great way. Right, And it was one of my schools I wanted to go to. And Monty, and I, I told him see you know, my brother worked for Monty for six years. He was just too honest right? because he <laughs> called me and offered me a scholarship. And he's like, OK, so here's the deal. We have Brevin Knight. You'll back him up for two years and then you'll, be, and you'll play some with him. And then you'll be the starter for two years. And I was like, coach, thanks. Love Stanford. Think you run a great program. Not really interested. And they signed Art Lee instead of me because I wanted to start as a freshman. It was, it was really kind of that simple. But every guy I've met from Stanford, it's like the guys from Notre Dame. It's like the guys from Oklahoma State. Just kind of OKGs, right? They are kind of guys. Um, But give me the – give me like, all right, so when Stanford guys sit around, we tell stories. Here's a story of what it was really like.
3: (laughs) Yeah. First of all, that's hilarious about Monty. He is very honest. I think that was part of his success in a way, but also like, you know, that – that that candid nature, you know, not, is not for everyone. But that was kind of his structure, right? Like you come in, you don't play at first. You you take your licks, you pay your dues, then you kind of move up. So it's funny that you went through that. Uh, Stanford is a unique place, man. It's just different. Like ultimately, it's an amazing place. The values are really right. Like the people treat each other well. There's a lot of innovation. There's a lot of like you know, Stanford's a great school. So there's a lot of like intellect there. But it's not. It's not even about that, dude. It's just about ideas and being supportive of other people and thinking big. So it's a really, really special place. I, I, after I retired professionally, I went to business school there. So I got that taste of it as well. And like, so I spent six years on campus and I just love it. But to your question, like when the, when the fellows are hanging out and we're talking, it's the same stuff, right? We're telling stories of old games and old parties and this and that, but like, you know, the thing that's interesting about Stanford is that when you're a student athlete in particular, like when the, when the football team's awesome and the basketball team's awesome, like you'd think you'd be like the toast of the town and the biggest thing on campus, but like, there's so much going on there and people have done so many cool things. Like you're just kind of a face in the crowd, which on one hand, it's different, but it's also cool because you're just like part of part of the deal.
6: Yeah. It's interesting. It must be interesting though. Having gone back to business school there, how, when you were there, Maples was arguably the best, um, atmosphere in the league. And now it's one of the worst, right? It's, it's one of the worst. Um, some of that is they haven't been successful over the last decade, but some of that is that all of that inf- innovation, all that other stuff has gotten even bigger in Silicon Valley, right? And even bigger yeah. at the school, whereas sports matter less and less, even when football has gotten really good and, and, and basketball it used to, it used to be the happening place, used to be the kind of crown jewel of Stanford with Stanford
3: basketball. So it was crazy, man. Like Maples. And, you know, we used to have this floor that bounced, which actually yeah. they, they replaced after my sophomore year because we had a, several stress fractures in people's feet. But like- Oh, they replaced fans, that? I
6: didn't know that. I did they
3: replaced it. My sophomore year, we had three guys with stress fractures in their feet. So they said maybe that contributed to it. So they replaced it. But like, that was our calling card. Like our fans are jumping. The floor is bouncing. The ceiling's about to pop off. Like it was the hottest ticket in town, man. I'm telling you, like- and to your point, like it hasn't been like that. And, you know, the program, like I'm of course very st- still close with the coaching staff and, and huge supporters of them. Like gotten great players. Like we've, you know, we've we've had our moments and, and still trying to build up. But yet yeah, it had Maples has not been hopping like it was. And it's a bit of a bummer because like I take my wife back and like you're telling her about the glory days, but we're looking around and like, you know, it's not exactly how we remembered it. But listen, like I, I have faith in the program and the coaching staff and i mean, in the, the kids they've recruited, but yeah, to your point, like it, it, hasn't quite been, you know, what, what it was. Um, so, you know, we're, we're hoping to get back. You get done playing, right. You
6: don't get drafted, but your dad's in the league, whatever, uh, take me through your process of deciding to immediately go overseas.
3: Sure. So, you know, so my junior year, I was first team all pack 10. I was, you know, one of the top scorers in the conference. I had a really, really strong year. Um, and so there were rumors that I'd be like late first round pick if I left. So I was thinking about leaving. And at the end of the year, I tore my ACL on a fast break uh, in a nationally televised game. By the way, Tiger was courtside at that game too. He used to come to one game a year. Uh, so I remember I was lying on the table uh, after I hurt my knee, like my dreams were just crushed. And literally in my head, I, I thought, I wonder if Tiger will come back and like, you know, give me some love. Like I, w- I wasn't in my right mind then, but uh, in my senior year, I just wasn't right. You know, I went from averaging 18 a game to 12. And so, you know, I, I, I played summer league with Indiana, but you know, it was very marginal. So I had an opportunity overseas in Germany, um, took it, you know, I'd never been to Europe. I didn't know anything about European basketball and you played over there. Like, you know, I was just shocked that i High the level was the way they play. And so I immediately kind of fell in love with like, just the whole, like I was doing what I always wanted to do. I just wasn't doing it in the league. Right. But I was a pro player. I was getting paid. I was balling. It was just like, it was really fun. And of course, like I always wanted to play in the league and I got close with the Knicks in training camp a few years later, but you know, ultimately like my career in Europe, man was, was super fulfilling.
6: Wait, take, take me
3: to, okay. So
6: what year was it where you're in camp with the Knicks?
3: 2008. Okay. Who's the coach? it's it's Mike D'Antoni's first year, which actually really was an advantage for me because everyone was new to the system, but coach D'Antoni's system is really like pass and move. And that was the type of player I was like, listen, you weren't going to give me the ball on the wing for an ISO at any level, particularly in the NBA. Right. But if you're passing and cutting and, and that kind of stuff that, that worked for me. So I really, really had a strong training camp. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was an awesome experience. And
6: what what is that like though, too? Cause I, again, I, I wasn't at your level, but, and I didn't get to training camp, but I remember I was in Summer League with the Lakers. And I, and, and I would go to, I went to a couple vet mini camps for them, whatever. And every year would be the same where I'd go in there and I was really kind of emotionally, mentally timid, like, hey, just, you know, you got to, you know, you're not a Laker. You know, I was yeah. like in my mind, like, you're not a Laker. You got to, you got to earn the right to be a Laker. You got to kick everybody's ass. Yeah. You got to be early. You got to be perfect. And I put a lot of pressure on myself. And then the more you do it, the more you're like, well, I can do this, you know? And then you walk in the building and, I, and again, I don't know what the Knicks are like, but I'm guessing it's the same. It's like now you start to know the secretary's name, you know, all the trainer's names, everybody, NBA people, generally, they treat everybody with an incredible amount of respect. Yeah. Like, even if you are not have no chance of making a team, like you want a massage, all that stuff. And by like day three, you start to like envision yourself like, what what if I was a Laker? That would be kind of cool, <laughs> right? For you, Dad played in the league, grew up there. Dad was the GM. I'm sure there was a long relationship there with Dan Tony. What is that like to go through the emotional ups and downs of, dude? I I could make this team. To them calling you in and going, yeah, yeah, you're not going to make this team. What, what was what do you remember about that?
3: I've tried to stay even keel and just focus on the work. It's easier said than done, right? Because, like, if you get, if you start like, you know, projecting out of what it could be, it's hard to deal with that. But, like, to, to your point, like, you just have to earn your keep when you're like a, a training camp invite or a summer league invite. So I always just tried to like work, earn, like, prove my worth. Uh, there were moments because, like, you know, where I was playing in Europe is a high level and the. NBA, of course, is the highest level in the world, but the difference, you know, between like a, a, a good overseas player and, you know, maybe like a, a bench player of the NBA or like, a, you know, one of the, one of the last guys on the bench, like it's not that much. So all of a sudden you start playing, and you're like, yeah, I could do this. Right. And I would have days where I was like, dude, like I call my buddies, like you won't believe the guys who were guarding me that I was calling for the ball. Cause they're like, I, I was bigger than them. But like, these are guys that I grew up watching and you kind of realize like, oh, I could do this. And it, it really just takes discipline, man, to like, try not to get too much in your head. I can't say that I was always successful because I and my dad played for the Knicks and I grew up, you know, idolizing this team. And I was like, the one thing is they had 15 guaranteed contracts. So I knew someone needed to get traded, cut or bought out. Uh, Stefan Marbury was a teammate at the time and there was rumors that he was going to get bought out. So I was like, dude, if he gets bought out, like maybe I slide in uh, when it didn't happen. I was bummed. But the other part of it was I was also like kind of and, and we can get into this later. And I'm sure we will. When we talk about my book like. you now. I had a very intense basketball career, right? And you probably can relate to this, Doug. Like, if I could go back and do it over again, I'd want to smile more and enjoy more and worry less. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of players yes. probably say that. But you know, I, I was uh, I, I was rarely content. You know, and and that was one rare moment where I felt like I gave everything I had. I showed that I could compete at that level. It didn't happen to work out, but I, I was also like, oh, I'm at a really high level in Europe, and I was I was content in a way, which is which is strange to say because. Not only because I just like got cut from an NBA team, but it also was a feeling that I rarely had playing because like, you know, there's so much kind of pressure and stress and, and meaning behind basketball. And again, it relates, you know, closely to my book, which I know we'll talk about, but we all have our stories about basketball, why it means so much to us. You know what I mean? So like that, the Knicks thing was kind of like a culmination for me of all that. Favorite country you played in? Israel. And I'm lucky because I had really good stops overseas. So I played a year in Germany, three in Spain and four in Israel. Like these are good leagues, really good countries to live in, made great friends. Like I had such a cool experience, but for me, like, and you played in Israel, right? So, you know, like. It's, I played
6: the uh, same team. I played. Yeah. Uh, Bane HaSharon used to be
3: Maccabi Renana. So did right. you play
6: at Metro West? It was at the gym you guys played at.
3: So we were, I w- we were in Herzli at that point. I have played in Metro West during the Maccabia games. That's actually where yeah. the gold medal game was. But, uh, but yeah, so, uh, yeah, you played, there was Renan at the time, but I played for Benel Um, And, you know, that's in this, Renan and Herzli are like two of the nicest cities in Israel. And that's where I lived my first year. So I was like, you know, and listen, like different leagues have different qualities. So when I was in Spain for, you know, the middle three years of my career and we practiced twice a day. Like I could barely get off the couch when I got home. Israel, it's a little more relaxed. And at the end of my career, I was cool with that. You know, practice once a day, enjoy, come home, hang with my wife, go to the beach, like. like eat falafel. Like I look, my wife and I would look at each other sometimes like, dude, this is this is what's up. Because it was just so awesome.
6: It was so great. It was so great. Like my thing was, uh I didn't really get along with Sharon Drucker. I actually thought
3: he was a good coach. I you, real quick, talk, I played for Sharon in uh, in Jerusalem. He and I also didn't get along like particularly well, but yeah, I, I we have nothing but respect now. But yeah. I liked his
6: like in hindsight, I loved his practices because all we did was play in his practices. Yeah, right? like I don't remember. I don't remember doing a bunch of drills. Uh, I just, just the way in which I think we, and he had, he had coached Miles Simon the year before me and Miles and him hadn't gotten lost. So I had a little bit of that negative bias. Yeah. And then I'll tell you something interesting that happened. So um, I played for him the year after like this, right season, right after nine 11. Okay. So they called me right after nine 11 and wanted me to come over and play. And it was dumb negotiations about money, but it dragged out so long that by the time I registered, I couldn't play the first four games. So I went through training. I missed the little training camp. I went through training with them and the first four games, he was, he was like, Godly, uh, won't you, you, you'd be like a coach, you'd coach with me. we go to meetings. It was great. Like yeah. I, but I actually, he, I, I knew too much from be sitting in like I sat in on coaches meetings, and we go right. through kind of strategy of scouting reports and I'd watched it cause I didn't have anything to do. I, I didn't have, you know, so um, so he started calling me Professor, Professor Gottlieb. Professor, <laughs> you know more than we know. And I was like, bro, you're the one who asked my opinion. Now when I give you my opinion, you don't like my opinion. It's really <laughs> weird. Anyway, my point is that I was in Russia the year before, which our team was unbelievable. And I thought our coach was really, really good. And yet living in Israel, playing in Israel was like, You go in and you lift in the morning, get some shots up. You come home and the weather was great. And Uh, you want to go to the beach and you weren't like you weren't going to kill yourself at practice that night. So you whereas in Russia, like, bro, we lifted hard for an hour. We worked out hard for an hour. Then you come home and life is hard because it's cold and you're bundling up. And then you go home and you're just like, I got to go to sleep and then get up and then bump and bump five on five and drills and stuff.
3: Practice for two hours just was harder. And boy, is, Israel was better. Here, here's something people don't realize too, but you will like road trips. So like in Russia, like if you were playing a road game, like you'd get on a bus and or you, fly. Like you'd be gone. In Israel, it's such a small country, it's day of, right? So, and I had come from Spain where we'd be taking 12 hour bus rides, Germany too, or if we'd fly, it would still like, you'd be gone for two days cool. and it'd be like really tough travel. Like in Israel, you're playing in Haifa, which is a little bit far. It's like, hey, that's like a two hour bus ride. That's like the long one, you know, like so that part of it, man, it was just like such easy living. live in. The basketballs good. The people are cool. Like, and then for me, like being Jewish, having family in Israel and, you know, my, so my dad almost went to Israel. Like, you know, they, they ended up coming to America, but like my whole, all my other family members went to Israel. Right. So like, there's something meaningful there as well to like reconnect with family in the past. So for all those reasons that I just loved it there. Yeah. Yeah. Plus the falafel is big time. It's just on, And a- actually the falafel, but all the food. Like oh. my wife and I came home like snobs. Like we'd come to, we'd be in a restaurant in the states. Like, well, this produce isn't fresh, <laughs> you know, because like it is. <laughs> also, right?
6: also, you also you would never say hummus ever again.
3: Like, no. Yeah, exactly.
6: Hummus. <laughs> it's, it's not hummus. It's just it's not not hummus. It's not how they pronounce it. Um, Okay, so uh, you never played from a copy Tel Aviv.
3: Why? Well, I would have if they would if I would have gotten the offer. So like let's. Um, that I understand, but so, why didn't they like? What was it? So I, my first year in Israel for for B'nai Al-Sharon, I was the leading. So I counted as Israeli, as you probably did, just on account of being Jewish, right? So that helps kind of with the quotas. And so I was the leading domestic scorer in the league. I had a really good year. Our team did really well. So I was like kind of sought after. And David Black called me and I thought that it was going to happen, you know? So there was like a week where I thought I was going to play for Maccabi. They ended up going in a different direction. And uh, I actually signed with Halon very briefly to follow my coach, Dan Shamir, who's an amazing coach. Uh, they had some financial stuff. So I ended up going to Hopwell, Jerusalem, right? Which is kind of like the second biggest team in right. the league and also a really strong club. And uh, so never, never. Did you, got did to you play for Jerusalem? So Oded Katash brought me. Um, and, you know, Oded was just a legendary player. And actually, when my dad was GM of the Knicks, my dad wanted to bring Oded to the NBA to be the first Israeli player. Uh, but it was during the lockout. So there was a lockout and then I think Odette eventually signed with a team overseas and he never made it to leave, but he was an NBA caliber player, just an amazing player, great guy. And then he was let go in the middle of my first year and actually Sharon Drucker then joined and I had Drucker for, for my last year. Um, Katash was, he's a
6: different cat though, right? Like he retired mid-career to like go and find himself, didn't he? Like he's, a, he's an interesting dude.
3: Oh, listen for the, I love this guy. And he, in Israel, he is just like a legend. He's a great guy. And there, there are just, there are so, there are different ways to be successful in life and in business and everything else. And like, I learned a lot from Odette. Cause like, he's the type of hands off coach. Like I remember one time after practice, our assistant was like, "Oded, free throws. And Odette looked at him and was like, whatever. He's like, I don't care. Like, have them shoot free throws, have them don't like when I was at Stanford, like you were shooting 20, you were registering how you shot it. There was a yes. database, you know what I mean? Like yes. Odin was like, shoot your free throws or don't. But I'll tell you this: he won a championship in the Israeli League with Khalil Gilboa like a few years before he came coming to Jerusalem. It worked, you know what I mean? Like his he was hands-off, but he had trusted his players, you know. But right, you if
6: you it, it you can do it with pros,
3: and but you gotta have the right pros. You have to I have mean, the right pros. It, Doug, it didn't work in Jerusalem for us. We, we struggled because we didn't have the right pros. You know what I mean? So that, to your point, yeah, it's got to be the right people. To- totally. Yeah. I, I just coached in TBT. And, you know, with those guys,
6: we, we played a game and we, they were exhausted. And I just I said, hey, we got a shooting time middle of the day. Let me know if you guys want to go. And I expected none of them to go. And then, you know, they all showed up and it was it was great. But I was like, I, awesome. actually, I actually didn't want them to go because I wanted the rest of their legs. And then we got eviscerated in, the, in, <laughs> in, the, in 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 the second game. Um, why'd you why'd you why'd you close it
3: up? Why'd you why'd you quit? Yeah, and you can relate to this man. Like, man, I mean, like, you put your heart and soul into it for all those years, and I, you know, you just know, right? And and there was a point, like my last year. So I this was my fourth year in Israel. I went back to Herzlia, and because I had had two kind of disappointing years in Jerusalem, and I thought I'd revive my career. I still physically was okay. Not that ever I was I was that great physically, but I had whatever I had to begin with, where I could still do some things, but. I would I would I would be groaning tying my shoes before practice, you know, like just physically like I just and and literally a weekend I called my dad. I was like, I'm done, man. Like, I just don't have it, you know, and and also playing overseas takes a toll because you're away from your family all those years. And Israel
6: is like the best possible. This is the thing I think now. Now it's a little different. You know, when I I remember when I was there and this is like a 102 is, you know, you can watch ESPN, but there's still there's there's parts of your life which you are missing on, right? Like, oh. you know, it doesn't, you can play fantasy football there, but it's just not the same on a Sunday when, Good. when, you know, the games are on at different times and just parts of your life that you you take for granted about our country that you can't do. And, and, you know, you have cousins that have kids and people get married and going and seeing other people play their sports and just your regular life that, I don't, I don't know if people conceptualize, they, they only vision, Hey, I'm going to get money and put that money away and have a bunch of money when I start my life, which is great, but there are things that are sacrifices.
3: So I'll tell you this, man. Like I always say, like, my wife, my wife, Yeah, she was my, my girlfriend for a time. She's actually my wife, but like she was over with me for our last five years. Right. If it weren't for her, I don't know how I would have made that trip over. Cause I had the the comfort and, and that kind of connection, but like it it, it can be isolating. And like, you know, I I have a lot of empathy for international players who come to the NBA and like fans will just like, they don't know how hard it is to leave everything, you know, the people, you know, the places, the things and to come to a a country that's not your own. And for me in Israel, like I had every advantage. I had family, they speak English. It's amazing. I had my wife with me, dude, you had to drag me to the airport, man. (laughs) By my last year, like I'm almost like hiding in my bedroom closet, dude. It's like, to go back over. Cause I'm just like, Oh, you leave everything. Right. So um, people don't get it. But then also when you look at young Europeans in the NBA, like I, I have a lot of empathy because I'm like, they left everything behind and it's hard.
6: Okay. So did you quit mid season? Did you finish out the year? What did you
3: do? No, no, I would never quit mid season. And like, I never quit on my team. Like I was trying, like I did not have a great year. Like I, I mustered all-, all my energy, but no, I, I kind of knew like, this is going to be my last year. And, Actually, I wanted to make it like the best I possibly could. And so I still tried, you know, I worked and I competed. But, you know, when your heart kind of checks out a little bit, it's really hard because basketball is so competitive, man. And like, and and that's how it should be. Like, if you don't fight tooth and nail for everything, someone else will, and it should be that way. And there was a point in my career where I was the guy out working and out fighting people. And then I got to the point where I was getting outworked and out fought by guys. And I guess that's a natural cycle, but like uh, finished out my career. But like, honestly, as soon as the buzzer sounded on my last game, broke broke into tears, man. Just- knew it was over? Just cried, just cried. Who was it, it
6: against? Who was your last game against?
3: Funny. And, and, uh, I actually, I write about this, this story in my book because it was against Hopwell a lot. And you know how it is in, in, in these leagues, you get relegated if you're towards the bottom and Herts Leo is like a good club, like should never be in danger of relegation. And we were this year and it came down to the last game of the year, the last game I knew of my career. So I'm like, geez, like, can I just sail off into the sunset with this thing? Like, and I'm playing like crap and I'm like, oh can we just, you know, end this in the, on a positive note, the game came down to the last possession we were up one and they had the ball. And actually a teammate from of mine from Jerusalem, a national team, awesome player, Yuval Naimi. I don't know if you remember him, but really, really good player. He had the ball to win the game. And at the buzzer, he missed. So like, and and our fans stormed the court, you know? And I did, I just put my hands on top of my head and just started to cry. And I looked in the in the stands of my wife and she was crying. Cause like, listen, this is, a, this is a lifetime pursuit, man. And you know, you put everything into it. I, growing up, going to games with my dad, working out with my dad, like everything that, he went through and my grand and my family went through to get me the opportunities I had. Like it all just came out at that moment. Um,
6: it's interesting. So I have, I have two end of career stories. So um, my last game in Russia, it was my first year professional, but th- this is when I, I probably knew right then and there, like I wasn't cut out for European basketball or maybe even professional basketball. So when I, I went to Perm Rush, I played with Eurogre, and I played as an American. And I joined them in January, and we only lost one game the whole time I was there, which is crazy in our European yeah. league. And in that, and the only game we lost was because I played with the juniors against Seska because we had won the league and advanced automatically to the semifinals. So it was like our last regular season game, right? And those guys got to go on vacation, and I had to stay and play. So. I was really hard because, like, I went from, like, I'm a facilitator by nature to, like, now I'm the guy. And I took a bunch of shots. But I missed a ton of them. <laughs> anyway, so my last game in Russia, we won the Russian championship against Unix Kazan. Yep. And it's in Kazan. And they have a small arena, but it was packed, and there's kazoos, whatever. And I was getting, like, a 50 grand bonus or something like that. So I was really excited about it. Yeah. But the way in which that series went, we were so much better. They would start me. And I would, they would try and press to start the game, and he couldn't press me. And then we'd get a lead, and they take me out. And then once we get a big lead, Willie Burton, who's the other American, they take him out too because they wanted the Russian guys yeah. to win, to, to be, you know, to get that. So I didn't hardly play that much. And I just remember winning the championship, and everybody was celebrating, and I had no feeling in my body. Right. And I was like, and the juxtaposition of that and a year,
4: to start listening
6: earlier when i lost my last game with oklahoma state and we were at syracuse like i felt like we all it was like a death in the family like, right right you, I, I can tell you every one of my losses in college and every reason why we lost and yeah. everything i should have done better right like i can tell you exactly yeah. what i did i didn't give a shit right the you only thing in, i right? cared about was Oh my god! I just made fifty thousand dollars, and I barely fucking play, right? <laughs> and I just was like, "This is not what I got into it for." And so then I, uh, and then I went to Israel, and it was okay. And then I was, I, I, uh, I got a chance. I actually did broadcasting for a year. I Came back and played in France, and I really liked it because I had a younger coach. He's, uh, uh, he was a black guy from like the Martinique or whatever. It was fun. But so my actual last. Competitive professional game. I don't know if I've told this story on the pod. Or not. So we're playing, uh, I not Lamont, uh, somebody from up like near Normandy, like Nancy or something. I'm mm-hmm. not sure. Okay. So we were, I was brought in to replace a guy who was injured to try and get them to the first division. And we were like in third place and the top two teams. went. And I think we went like four and one the time I was there, maybe six and one or something. We lost one game. I remember, like the day of the game, the other team. We get done shooting around, and this is where, like, I actually enjoyed a little bit of the isolation. I signed a deal, and they 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 said we're not going to give you a car because you're going to live like two blocks from the arena, and it was only for like two months. I was like, all right, whatever. So I had this little studio. I get up in the morning. I go across the street. I get a cappuccino and get a like a Danish. I'd walk to the gym, lift weights, shoot, you know, hang out a little bit. Then I walk to a cafe where I got free food. And the chef would come out and say something in French. I didn't know what he said. And I was like, "We." <laughs> oui? And he would make it for me. It was amazing. Anyway, so my last game opened. We get out done with like our shoot around. And the door opens for their bus. And it's my high school teammate, David Lalazarian, who went to Notre Dame the year after I went. And I had to leave. So we never played together as, as college players. Played together. But all of a sudden, he walks off the bus. And so, too, does Kelvin Gibbs. Who I had known growing up, he played at Pepperdine. I played him my my senior year uh, in school, and so Kelvin's on the team. David was like traveling with the team. They're trying to put him on a contract for next year. End of the game, uh, I'm talking shit to this French point guard. We're winning, and he wants to fight, and these other guys score off and start fighting, and I get kicked out of the game with like 14 seconds to go, in my last professional game. So I'm blowing <laughs> kisses to the crowd. I'm doing the this thing, you know, to the crowd. And my wife and David are actually sitting up in the stands and I walk underneath them in that little vomitorium area, right? And I'm I'm like blowing kisses, and all of a sudden I hear this rush sound, and the guy comes to want to fight me in the hallway in a huge melee. Anyway, <laughs> I'm suspended six games in France if I ever go back, just, just so you're aware. Um that's that's hilarious. How, so I went out with the I did not go out with the tears of joy and mixed emotions, but I do know that feeling because that year I had it, and then I, the reason I didn't come back and play was I got a full-time offer at ESPN and I couldn't even get myself to play pickup ball. Yeah. You know, for like almost a year, because I just had this one, I had my, my shooting mental block thing was really, it was, it had gotten better, but it just, it really bothered me sometimes to play basketball with people. Um, and then two, it just wasn't the same. I just didn't love it because it didn't mean anything. Everything like I like basketball. That means something. Even if you go play in a park, like I want to stay on the court or I want to play with a friend and I want to, it wanted to mean yeah. something like it got to a point where it didn't mean anything.
3: Yeah. I, I didn't touch a ball for a year after I retired and it was, you know, I'd say a similar thing, like needed a break, needed to kind of like decompress and, like basketball is such an accessible sport, right? Like you watch it, you root for it, but you know, like if you haven't lived it, it's hard to really understand like the pressure the how much it means, like, and how much you have to put into it to get to some of those levels. Uh, you know, it's sort of like you and I, like, yeah, we had some ability, but it's not like you could just walk on the floor at any time and dominate. Right. So you have to really devote your life to getting to the level you want to get to. And uh, dude, it, it's just, it's an amazing journey, but it, it is taxing. When was the last time you seriously considered
9: your dream? Did something never thought you would do? How about live the van life in a totally customized Mercedes-Benz Sprinter van? You could tour the country, whatever you want to dream up. And we're talking about Mercedes-Benz van here. Expect innovative safety features like crosswind assist and blind spot assist. Expect performance and reliability with that MBUX voice command system. You're going to get five-star dealer network available with a gas engine. Now you could win your very own Mercedes-Benz Sprinter Mode 4x4. You enter the Dan Patrick Show Ultimate Camping Rig Sweepstakes. You go to danpatrick.com or foxsportsradio.com, and there you enter, get official rules for a chance to win this beautiful Mercedes-Benz Sprinter van. danpatrick.com or foxsportsradio.com, and you have to do so by February 2nd. Your dream is waiting for you. DanPatrick.com, foxsportsradio.com. Some equipment described is optional.
6: Hey, All Ball community, uh, listen up. Two of three men experience some form of hair loss by the time you're 35. And it's one of those deals where you're like, what do I do? How do I avoid this thing? Is it smart? Uh, Don't be a statistic. If you're a little bald or a lot bald, fix it in a simple, stress-free way. Try Keeps. K-E-E-P-S. What you do is a virtual doctor consult at Keeps.com. And then the medications are delivered straight to your door. It's low cost with treatment starting at just $10 a month for FDA-approved medications. And they can prevent hair loss. Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors. And don't walk around with pattern baldness. We all know it's not cool. It just doesn't feel right. Prevention is, in fact, the key. So if you're ready to stop messing around, right? You got a new year, a new energy towards fixing the little things like hair loss. You want to prevent hair loss? Go to KEEPS.com slash all ball. You get your first month of treatment free. That's keeps.com,
4: keeps.com slash allball. This episode is brought to you by Direct TV Stream. Introducing Direct TV Stream, the best of live TV and on demand, which means you can get all your favorite sports, movies, and shows together, so you can watch new episodes of your favorite reality shows live or binge old episodes on demand. Either way, get ready for some drama. And the best part, DirecTV Stream has no annual contract. DirecTV Stream, get your TV together at directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet and compatible device. Content varies by package and location, restrictions apply.
3: So
6: you get back and when did you decide to go to
3: business school? So my last year playing, I knew that like, okay, I want to, because, you know, I had done well academically at Stanford. and I was really, I like to learn. And I was like, I want to go back to school. So I was studying for the test and I joke with people like I, you know, I, I focused a lot on that and it probably showed on the court, but also on the test cause I did really well there. But like, uh, you know, so I, uh, at, I took a year and I, I worked at the NBA for my first kind of job, post, uh, post basketball, which is also weird. Cause then I'm like, I'd be like sitting at a desk at noon. And I'm like, I text my friend, like, dude, I'm just like sitting here. Like, there's like, this is what I do now. Like you get used to it. Now I said, yeah, that's what you do. But like, there's that transition when you're used to just like, yeah, lifting and practice and resting. And now it's like, oh, I, I sit at a desk. But, uh, you know, so apply I, to- I, I have a friend, his name's Gabe Frank. He's a doctor uh, in North Carolina. But he also
6: played the Maccabi Games team with us in uh one Anyway, on. he went from playing in the CBA, he went to Wisconsin Stevens Point, to being in medical school. And he, would, he was like, uh, his first, he almost, I, I think he almost flunked out and he really struggled. it wasn't because he wasn't smart, but he was just so used to the basketball lifestyle, which basketball lifestyle is, we all think we work hard, but there's, you can only be in the gym so long, right? Like, yeah, I spent all day in the gym. Like, no, you didn't. You went there. If you went hard, you know, you lifted hard for 45 and you went hard in the gym for an hour. And then you came home, you got something to eat. And then you came home, you take a nap.
3: Yeah, exactly.
6: And then you hung out, you played video games all day. And then you called some friends and then you had practice that night. Right, so totally. he was like used to that lifestyle. Now he's now he's in medical school. And like, yo, dude, we don't like take a nap in the middle of the day. We don't play video games in the middle of the day. Like, you got to study all the time. And then residency was really hard for him. It's it's like as athletes, you do have to work hard, but it's just a different pace and pattern than how I, my friends and I we call them civilians than how civilians live.
3: So true, man. And like, so I, there was that adjustment for me the first year. You know, applying to business schools, got into Stanford which was awesome you know such a great program and like i had the time of my life there like it was a great kind of accelerator for me and just to you know because again like you you go through this very intense athletic pursuit but you have your your whole life in front of you and i was also lucky because i had a great example my dad like he had an awesome career and he was a legend in all these ways and 31 years old he was done playing 31 right it's you're still a young man and so but i saw like his career after bat you know after playing you know it, it was it was bigger than his playing career right and so like i I had that great example of like, you need to build after you're done. And so, you know, love, love my experience at business school. And uh, I I definitely recommend it for, for players who have the kind of the desire to do it. Cause I think it's it's an awesome experience to learn not only like about the business world, but learn about yourself.
6: Plus the people who are around you, right? Like I'm sure Stanford business school, there are probably some pretty
3: successful people that, that go through those halls. Amazing. Yeah. It's like, and just like amazing friends and like push you and challenge you. But like, yeah, like the network, right? The the Stanford Business School network before and after is really powerful. And, and your personal relationships and uh, yeah, wouldn't trade it for the world, man.
6: Why do you why do you think and this is a question? OK, so this real conversation I had. So um, I, I'm a big believer in the value of the network. Right. That that's that's the real reason you go to college. You don't go to college because anything you learn. I learned a lot in at Oklahoma state marketing. I, I learned a lot at, at Notre Dame. Just, it, it was kind of like Stanford where the level of intelligence of everybody there and the ideas was really profound it was just right. above any sort of level of what i I was used to. And so what I told those guys is like, look, uh, Oklahoma state basketball now has kind of become a little bit of a dysfunctional family. Cause we've had a bunch of different head coaches and some of the head coaches weren't, weren't about the basketball family. They were just about their basketball team. Right. When we were there, it was all about the family, right? And to this day, if I need something, those are the guys I talk to. Those are the guys I call on. Those are the guys I depend upon. And so I said, look, let's let's fix that. Do you guys need anything? You call me. Um, I know Stanford's like that, where you guys are super, super close. I think a lot of schools are like that. But why do you think that in, I just feel like, Maybe the media, we do a bad job of helping people understand what the real value to college is. Because we're we're in this mindset where the only thing that is of value is actual money.
7: Mm-hmm.
6: And I, I don't I, I don't think that's the case. Don't get me wrong. You know, some guys come from tough means. A little money does help, right? Absolutely helps. And the money you make as a professional athlete should help you in that next life. But that next life is all about who are you going to pick up the phone and call when you want to start your life? Right. And I just, I I wonder why societal in society, we don't understand the true value of who, you know, and who you meet during your time in college.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's listen, I mean, I think everyone's different, right. And like college is not for everyone, which is of course fair and cool. And, and uh, everyone should just do what, what is comfortable for them. Like for me I really appreciated the, the opportunity in college to like, to meet different types of people, you know? And that was so, that that just broadens your horizons a lot. And Stanford's a really cool place because it is such a diverse student population. But like, that's really stuff that I'll take with me forever. Just like meeting friends from different parts of the world with different interests. You know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't just hanging out with basketball players, although I did a lot of that, right? But even my teammates are from all different uh, parts of the world. So yeah, I think that like the college has a ton to offer. I think it's important to talk about it, you know, in the classroom, out of the classroom, you can grow a lot, but for those who like aren't academically inclined or who aren't interested in college, I think, I don't think it's the only path either.
6: Yeah. It's, it's, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see how it evolves with so many different options for, for players. Mm -hmm. Um, What, what it looks like five years from now, what it looks like 10 years from now. Whereas I think kind of growing up, like for me and you, it was all I ever dreamed about was playing in college. Right. Yeah. It's all I ever dreamed about. And I talk about that with a lot of people. I I did a a podcast with Maurice Claret and he was like, look, I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio. And when I grew up, all anybody cared about was playing in college. Right. Right. And it it does feel like that has evolved and changed. Whereas college to many people. And I think it's how we, it's like, it's not really a way station. It's a, a place you stop. And then maybe you go to another destination afterwards, but you stop, you unpack, you grow, you evolve. And I, I, I feel like we diminish that. Um, okay. When did you decide
3: I want to write a book? So I'd done a lot of writing over the course of my life. So when I was playing professionally, I had contributing writing positions to several websites and I had some, you know, success with my writing. I just love it, man. Even as a kid, like my mom and dad will tell you, like everyone knew me as like a basketball player, but I'd come home and just like write stories. Like, and even when I was writing, when I was playing, like people weren't paying me, I just loved it, man. So I was writing articles and things like that. And I always knew that there was like a white whale project for me, which was this book. And and so, um, so my dad is the only player in NBA history whose parents survived the Holocaust. And so my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, have a very, very big story. You know, my grandmother was saved twice by Swedish diplomat, Raul Wallenberg, who's like one of the greatest heroes of the Holocaust. Um, My grandma lives here in the Bay Area, came to every home game I played at Stanford. So like, we're extraordinarily close. And you know, when I was talking before about like, why I cried when my career ended, what it all meant to me, like basketball is a miracle for my family. Cause my dad came to the United States nine years old, having never, never touched a basketball, didn't speak English, really growing up in the shadows of the Holocaust. And um, his brother passed away right when they got to America, like really, really tough background. And he went to the park to play hoops and make friends and learn English. And like, he, you know, 10 years later, standing on the podium as an Olympic gold medalist for the United States, you know, shows you what basketball can do. So for my family, man, like I've lived this life of like, man, basketball has such a profound uh, impact on us. And so, and then since I love to write and since the story means so much to me, I was like, one day I'm going to do it. And so when I was in business school, since I had a little bit of space after my career to like, think about things and really like look into myself and inside of me and be like, what do you want to do? And uh, I said, listen, I want to do this. This is probably the most important thing I'll ever do just because it's my, it's our history and it's an important story, but I, and I said this, like, if you're going to do it, you need to approach it. Like you approached hoops, like for basketball, I got up at, at in the morning I'd eat, I'd go to sleep. I would work out when I got up, you know, it was all discipline. And so I was like, if I'm going to write this, I have to write it. So I'd get up at 6 AM every morning for eight months, um, and, and write the thing. And so, you know, and that was after a year and a half of research. So it really is, uh, you know, there just came a time where it was like, this means the world to me. I want to, I want to, get it out there. But to do it, you just like anything else, you have to put your mind to it and be disciplined.
6: Um, Did you sell it first? And, and, you know, with like a rough outline of what it was like? Or did you write it and then
3: shop it? It's a great question. And uh, so I knew very little about like the book business before I started writing it. And how you would usually do a project like this is you like you have an idea, right? And like, there's also a lot of like really big stories about my family, like how they got to America and fleeing communism and all these things. And also my career and how it's kind of like all intertwined because I grew up privileged. Right. And we talked about that, like with opportunities, my ancestors couldn't have imagined. Right. So um, so I knew that there was a big story here. So usually what I would do is I'd put an I'd put an outline together. I'd write a sample chapter, a marketing plan, then find an agent. Then the agent would sell that idea. Then you would write the book around that idea. I did it backwards and I, I dealt with some professors at Stanford who kind of mentored me a little bit through this. And one of them in particular said, they were like, you know what, this means the world to you. You've written a lot, write it. They're like, this, cause I, I think this person kind of sense like, this is like really in my heart and it needs to be said. They're like, you don't, you want to write it. So like, I just put my head down, man, and just wrote it. And then after I did that, I got an agent. Then I built a proposal based off the book that already existed. Then we I, got a publisher for it. Um, did you, Wife edited, like who read it and gave you the first like legit feedback? So my wife has a master's in communications and she worked as a copy editor. Um, so she's like, she, she, she helps me with all my stuff. She's amazing. Amazing. So honestly though, Doug, like my, my, you won't believe this, man. My parents didn't know I was working on this for the first three and a half years. I never, cause like when you, when so, you talk
6: to them, like, what are you, what are you doing, Dan? What are you doing with your time?
3: I mean, like I listen, I'm writing I mean, a book about our lives. I, I, I would, you know, once in a while, it's like, you know, I'm working on a few things, but, and I also interviewed my dad for like a year, but, I, and I told him, I was like, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to work on things in future, but I just want to like know all these things. But like for me personally, it's so, it was it's so deep and meaningful that like, I had to just kind of like go into my own world with it. And, um, and so, but when it was finally ready, when there was something to be seen, it was, you know, my wife of course read the first one and we we went back and forth and uh, it's been, dude, I've been working on it for five plus years at this point. Like it's, uh, you know, a book is like a labor of love in every way, particularly one like this, man, where the story is big and, and not only is it big for me personally, but there, for me, there's always felt universal, right? Cause the themes are survival, perseverance, family, legacy, sports as a way to build bridges. And I always just had this sense like, man, this matters to the world, right? Like these types, not, not just this story, but these types of stories, right. This is just one of many stories that matter in this way. So I was like, I just want to tell it. Cause I think, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of really hard things, you know, when you're talking about, when I'm talking about what happened to my great grandparents in Auschwitz, where they were murdered, really, really difficult things. Like my dad never had grandparents, all of his grandparents were killed in Auschwitz, you know, but at the same time, the story is hopeful because my, my dad, you know, played in the NBA and is an Olympic gold medalist and was a long time, you know, executive in the NBA. Like, it kind of is like a dreams can come true uh, situation and and certainly the American dream, you know? So man, just, just such a, like a personal, personal pursuit to tell that story.
6: Um, I, I also find that this, this story you now I need to be told, but there's a lot of people who need to understand it. Right. Because th- there's so many, like as time goes, not enough people know the story, right. They just don't. they, You say Holocaust and it doesn't really when you say like six million Jews, 10 million people. Now it's going to be like, really? And it's so hard to fathom, right? Because of of all the the different struggles we go through, right, like you can't
7: even imagine in your mind the
8: I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Do you
5: love Selena?
8: Like, really love?
5: Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano.
6: less than a century ago, three quarters of a century ago, right? So it needs to be told. But what is the feeling like when, you know, like Myers Leonard saying, saying kike, right? And other people, you know, using, um, not really understanding what they're talking about. Like, what is that like for you who not only has a family who survived, but you've also researched it? And when you research it, it becomes even more tangible, more real to you.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, it's, it's upsetting, like anti-Semitism and, and really injustice in any form is upsetting. And for me, yeah, for, to not understand kind of what happened and what's at stake when there's injustice. Right. And then I know that we all know like, all too well. Right. And to your point, it wasn't that long ago. Like Doug, when we get, when we're done here, I will call my grandma. Cause I call her every night and we're going to just talk and she's going to FaceTime with my, with her great grandson. She's 96, man. She was there, right? Like she was there, like, it's like you can say like her parents were killed five of her siblings were murdered like those are just words but that happened to her right and so like that that's that's where someone i love one of the people i love the most in the world she went she went through that right so like yeah it it hurts me when i see that like anti-semitism and and also it not being kind of you know taken as seriously as it is and again that goes for all forms of injustice and i think i was always raised to like stand up when things are wrong because you know what's at stake and like It could be, you know, whether it's whether it's Jews or, you know, other groups who are being like persecuted or discriminated against. There's just no place for it. And yeah, it's super personal for me, man. It's super personal.
6: Okay, so so I know social justice is a huge part of who you are, Um, but you'll have people that will say, you know, there's like, look, Dan, white privilege. That's how you were able to. Your dad was a general manager. You went to great schools. Then you go to Stanford. And my pushback, not being you, would be like, hold on, dude, his dad got off the boat and everything he got, he earned for himself. And we're in a sport which is predominantly black. And every negative stereotype given is given to the white basketball player that you have to find a way to overcome. If I said to you or if somebody said to you, Dan, you're a product of white
3: privilege, what would your response be? I would agree with that, and I'll tell you why. I, I am, I am in no, I'm a product of privilege, right? Because I grew up in a privileged environment where I had opportunities and resources. But as a white man in America, I, I benefit from privilege. I think that's how our society is, um, and I think that's you know that's fair to to acknowledge. And I'm and I'm happy to acknowledge that, like as a white man, you know I have advantages unfairly that some of my black friends don't, right? And I do think there are there are injustices in society that are important to call out. But that being said, like everyone, everyone has their own journeys as well. So yeah, my dad is But aren't those
6: aren't those uh, my pushback would be aren't those privileges earned, right? Like you went to Stanford, that's because you worked your ass off in both school and sports. Like I I I mean, I think I think there's athletic privilege. I don't think we talk enough about there's socioeconomic privilege, you know? And I don't know if I I don't I don't know. I, I, I have a tough time just because I do understand. That's that people come from different means. But you're describing to me a, you know, family in disarray that comes to this country and uh, and and earns everything they've had. And yet you're saying that you're somehow privileged for what, so, what's been earned previous
3: to you. So so I, I I think like, for instance, for me getting to Stanford, for my dad making it to the NBA, that wasn't privilege. Right. Because there are no gifts in basketball. That's hard work. Right. But right. I just think in society, as a white male in society, you benefit from privilege just based off of that status because there are inequities in our society like i, I think that's the reality but as a relates, like my success or my dad's success it's all there's been no privilege at all because my like my dad earned what he what he got and i earned what i got on the basketball court in the classroom right so i got to stanford because i worked my ass off in the classroom and on the court you know what i mean and my dad came went from like this really really tough background not speaking the language like i mean it's it's amazing. Like uh, what, what he was, where he was able to get from where he started, what is truly a miracle. And it was through hard work and perseverance and all these qualities that were inside of him. So like the, I, the success that like he had or that I had was earned, but I do think it's really important to acknowledge that as like white males in society, we do benefit from privilege because of like the, the inequalities that, you know, that, that are present.
6: Um, when, when somebody reads this book, and don't you don't tell people you tell people basically kind of the premise of it. One story that they're not going to believe that you're going to read. Really, uh, I cannot believe I just
3: read that. <laughs> oh man, there is, that's an awesome question. Once, uh, well, listen, I don't want. We've already touched on some of the more difficult things. You know, uh, I'll tell you something that people won't believe because th- this is a story that that is not really well known. So, my my dad is a. Uh, Fled Romania as a refugee, right? So my dad was born under communism, and my 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 family fled under duress, right? And so living under communism, you're not allowed to have anything. You can't take anything out, right? So it's you know this is pretty pretty hard life. And so my family was able to accumulate money illegally, right? Because under communism, you're not allowed to accumulate things, and they were always they were searching for for ways to get it out, right? So because you know everything was searched, you couldn't take anything out with them. They were able to, and they had several. Thousands of dollars by then, which was like a fortune in those days. So my, my grandpa was like hell bent on like, we're getting this money out. How are we going to do it? The way they were, and they had American dollars, which by the way, if you were caught with American dollars, like you're going to prison, you're maybe being tortured, maybe being killed. So this is like pretty high, you know, like high-stakes stuff. My my grandparents were able to smuggle their money out by eliciting the support of one of the biggest celebrity comedians in the United States, Buddy Hackett. So, Buddy Hackett was filming a movie in Budapest, and my grandparents knew someone who was working on the movie set. And they were able to convince Buddy Hackett, who was like one of the biggest celebrities in America, to smuggle their money out for them and send it to their family in the United States. So, when they where do he put it? They sent it to my grandmother's brother, who was already settled in the Bronx with extra money on top, by the way, saying, Good luck in America. And so when they got off the boat, well, they actually flew. But when they got to America, uh, the money that they were able to start a life with was illegal money made under communism in Romania that was smuggled out by one of the biggest celebrities in the United States at the time.
1: Look through your children's eyes to see the true magic of a forest. It's a storybook world for them. You look and see a tree. They see the wrinkled face of a wizard with arms outstretched to the sky. They see treasure in pebbles.
6: Um, have you been to the concentration camps?
3: I haven't. Um, I haven't. Me either. I want to go. You know, I had an uh, opportunity where I wasn't able to, but listen, like I actually talked to someone today who told me about it, that someone in their family visited Auschwitz, and this is a non-Jewish friend. And he said it was one of the most profound and chilling experiences that they'd ever had.
6: I, I felt that when I went to Yad Vashem, every time I've been to Yad Vashem in, uh, in Jerusalem, just, I just. Uh, you know, I am like brought to my knees every time, just the, the atrocities. And, and look, I'll, I'll be honest Yeah, I wasn't, it's not the same, but I don't, you ever been the National Civil Rights Museum in, uh, in, in Memphis? It's at the Lorraine Hotel where Martin Luther King uh, Jr. was shot. And so they still have the room intact. And then the, the museum is built around it. And um, obviously there's not six million people, but, the, but when you visit it, you walk away just embarrassed for your country just you're just sitting there going like how did granted you know my family is like your family like we you either treated people with respect you know or or you wouldn't see the light of day right but you just you look around you're like how 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 do people have that within them in humanity right and and the holocaust is just to a completely different level i i i do want to do it i just don't know like emotionally i'm not really i still don't think I'm prepared for it. But it's like one of those things where you got to I have this discussion with my kids because I have three children and their mom is not Jewish. And, um, you know, two of them go to like a Jewish day school. And one says she's an atheist. One says he believes in Jesus. And then uh, their sister's like, you know, I believe in God. I can't really figure it out. And I, I try and tell them, like, listen, I, I don't actually it doesn't actually bother me if you're not Jewish. Like, I'd love you to believe what I believe. But if the more I say you need to believe what I, what I believe, then the less likely it is to happen, right? It either happens or it doesn't happen. You know, I just want you to tribute respect and hopefully believe in God and know there's an the afterlife. We'll all be together, et cetera. Uh, but your last name is God. That is a Jewish last name. If, in, if there is a time in which people get singled out, you're going to get singled out whether you like it or not. And you have to understand everything that kind of comes with it, right? And that's when those conversations, those visits, I, I think, become uh, really necessary. But I, I, I just think like we do a terrible job as a society in not teaching people about the atrocities of the past. And they, they like you don't want to scare kids, but you do have to educate them on
3: the evils that did roam the earth. No doubt about it. Though. There's been some really troubling data around like Holocaust awareness. And there are other things, too, where like just people aren't educated on. But like. Yet people have to know, uh, have to know about these things. And so that's kind of one of my hopes with the book is that younger people will engage because ultimately it's a, it's a story about some of these things that happen, but the rapper is basketball. There's a lot of funny and fun things and about, you know, growing up and, you know, playing the game and the game, you know, how, how you know, my dad's path, my path. And so, you know, there's, there's that really accessible part of it. But my, my hope is always that younger people will engage and, and in the process, learn about some of these things. Because I mean, like the data has shown, like, I forget exactly what the numbers were. It was like half of, half of like millennials hadn't even heard of the Holocaust. They yes. didn't even know, right. It was something like so disturbing and didn't even know like what Auschwitz was or thought it was like, you know, didn't know the number 6 million and things like that. And so listen, you know, all these really troubling things in history, regardless of like who it happens to, we need to learn from a man because like their humanity is capable of of a lot of great, amazing love and, and amazing things, but there's a lot of really, really bad things that can happen. And so that's why I like, you know, treating people well, standing up for what's right, standing against injustice, regardless of the form, it's so important, man. And so I hope my book is just like a small part of that.
6: Um, okay. A uh, couple of basketball things
3: before, before we end it. You yeah. were a great shooter. What, where did you aim? I appreciate you saying that I was a streaky shooter. So if I was in my, if I was like in my comfort zone, I could be lights out, but I was a little bit too analytical. Like, you know how it is. Like, like you're you're your own worst enemy. So I could definitely shoot the basketball, but I wish again, I could go back and like, kind of retrain my mind to shoot it a little more comfortably. But you know what? I I tried to aim like front rim, you know, but obviously over the front rim, but I was more like front rim than back rim. But I, I was always, I always kind of thought like, I always wanted to shoot naturally. Right. And like not aim and just kind did of you, like,
6: did you watch the flight of the ball
3: or did you only look at the target? I think I mostly looked at the target. I, I'm like trying to go back and think, you know, so I don't, I don't quite remember. Um, I usually like when it left my hands, I had a pretty good sense of what was going to happen. You know, like when I was on and there were times like, you know how it is, like when you're feeling it and like the ball swings you and you shoot it and you're like, well, I know what happened. I know what's happening there. Like that's yeah. going—you know—start you running back. Like those are the best feelings. And there are times where it wasn't happening. You should sure be like, "Uh oh, hey, that doesn't feel right." Um, so I don't really remember if I tracked the path of the ball. Uh, I might have though. Now that I'm thinking about it. Um, uh, you step in or uh, one two or hop into your shot. One two. Always left right. Yeah. No, I mean, like we worked at Stanford, Montgomery was big on this, like trying to develop the, like, cause so I'm a right-handed player. So left, right would be natural for me, like trying to be comfortable right, left. Cause if you're c- coming off a screen, a down screen on the right side of the floor, like you're going to curl around where like, you want to take like right, left into the shot, you know? So we would work on that a lot at Stanford, like stepping in with both feet, but my comfort was just like left, right. I always kind of admire people like JJ Redick is so good at like hopping into it, you know, and he seems to get good spring off it. Like my one of my weaknesses when my shot, like my when my legs went or I got tired, like, you know, the jump shot comes from the legs a lot. Like, my shot would get a little flat. And I sometimes think back, man, if I had that good hop step, maybe it would have given me a little more spring.
6: Um, you're The funniest teammate you ever played? with,
3: Man, that's such a – Carlton Weatherby, my teammate at Stanford. Uh, man, just the funniest, funniest dude. Um, and we're, we're the same, same grade, same age. And uh, we would just laugh nonstop. Um and then of course professionally like I played with other guys too like um, you know Lee Nalon who you probably remember playing the league like Lee and I, I just saw because, last like, week. Oh dude, yeah last like week. I know Lee's coaching now like Lee just had me rolling man on the floor so many times like you play with guys who just like are really really funny but I had a lot of teammates at Stanford where we would uh, we would man have a lot of laughs. You does did you
6: ever did you know type? So all this time, did you ever, do you feel like you knew tech?
3: No, not, no. So when, so the the game you mentioned, when we hit that half court shot to win it on my birthday, right? Like the fans rushed the court. It, it was like, it was madness. So finally we get into the locker room and Tiger came into the locker room to talk to us, you know? So it was like, it was, the, and he, that was 2004. So he's like the biggest celebrity on the planet. And I'm not, that's like, peak not t- peak tiger. yes. Yeah. It's like, it's like peak tiger. Right. So he, and he was married to Elon at that time. So they both came in the locker room. And, uh, and actually, I remember he went around the team and slapped us all high fives, you know, and we were all just like little kids like lining up and he missed me. I was the last dude and he missed me and he turned around and I was like, kind of like, oh man, like, but I, I guess I didn't have like whatever the guts to be like, yo, Tiger, could I get some love? But Montgomery, to his credit said, hey, Tiger, give Grunty some love, give Grunty some love. And he turned around and it was like, you know, like the two hands met and I was like, oh man, that's the best. Uh, that was my most interaction with him. I never got a chance, but I had a couple of friends on the golf team who said that he came and talked to them and did some like drills with them where they would like chip into a bucket or something. And my buddy's like, yeah, like us guys on the team, like out of 10, like if you made like one, two, three, like it was good. And Tiger would get like eight, nine, 10. It would just be like, boom, boom, boom. It was like, dude, it was next level.
6: The most successful Stanford guy who you were friendly with for any period of time, one
3: of your two times at Stanford. Wow. So, you know, the founder of Instagram was my class, um, Kevin Systrom. Like, like I, I knew him around, but like, he doesn't, I mean, that was, that was a huge, you know, a huge outcome. Uh, you know, Issa Rae, who's a very big, you know, actress and media personality was a year behind me at Stanford. Of course, like a lot of athletes who have done really cool stuff. Like my guy, Brooke Lopez just won an NBA championship, which was so cool. Crazy. Um, Brooke, Brooke came, the year after I left. Yeah. And actually I've heard you tell a very funny story about Brooke and Robin. Cause I know you, you play with Alex, right? Yeah. So I know, you know, those guys, but uh, yeah, listen, like, like there are, and then there are a bunch of people like in business school who just like have started companies that are doing like extraordinarily well, which is like, well, I mean, the founder it's of Instagram, that's pretty right. Yeah. That's, did, that's, did you that's, ever get
6: hit up on investing in any of these things? You're like, oh.
3: <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. Then, okay.
6: So it's Instagram. So you're going to take your own picture wherever you are. You're like,
3: yeah. Great idea. You'll appreciate this. Type. So like my, my at Stanford, you have random freshman roommates. So a lot of schools like you, 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 we you know, that internet, little, yeah. yeah. So, it, which was great. So my random freshman roommate became my roommate all four years at Stanford Is one of my best friends in the world, but he was he, he actually played on the football team briefly, but he wasn't recruited to Stanford as an athlete. He was a mechanical engineer major. So ours, and we were all, he lived with all, there was a lot of other people on the team our sophomore year that we lived with. So he was the only non-basketball player. And he went to a career fair, like on a weekend. And we were like, dude, we're watching movies, we're hanging out. You're going to a career fair, and this was 2004, our sophomore year. And he came back. He's like, dude, like I got this job offer from this little company, like Facebook, like they had a little booth, like I think it's pretty cool. We're like, dude, hang out, like we're just chill, like it's not about that. And so he he didn't take that. And so we look back on that. We're like, sorry, man, (laughs) like you you were right. Like we were we were probably not on the right side of history there.
6: Um. Okay. So you've this is like your life's work, right? This is your, now what?
3: It's a great question, man. Like I, first of all, I, I do love to write, so I would love to see more opportunities to be able to do that. But I just, I like, honestly, like, I really want to live in the moment with this project now because the book comes out in November, right? So it's available for pre-order now. And the, that all that stuff has gone really, really well. There's been great engagement around it. Enthusiasm, enthusiasm around it. Like, unfortunately as you kind of, you reference this, it's really relevant because of not only like the increase in anti-Semitism, but just in, in general, right. The different kind of injustices in our society, like stories like this are really are, are, are relevant now. Um, not that they've ever not been relevant, but uh, there's been really good engagement around it. And so like, you know, just trying to like stay in the moment, you know, share the story with people. And then, um, continue to just kind of like honor this history, man. like my grandmother. She's really like, she's the hero. She's my hero. She's the hero of the story. She is a hero. And this is something else that's in the book. Like she was able to obtain false documents to survive on the streets of Budapest during the war, but she risked her life to obtain 17 other documents for other people too. Right. So she's quite literally a war hero. And, um, for me to like memorialize this and just to be able to kind of like live her values. Like that's, that's the most important thing to me right now. And if I'm able to write more things and of course do more things professionally, basketball is always a huge part of my life. Like those are all things that I care about a lot, but just like to like live my grandma's values, man, that's, that's all I can ask for. All right. Last thing you mentioned,
6: Milwaukee's placement to high school. Your dad was the GM there when they went to the Eastern conference finals the last time around. Right. To see them as NBA champions, and what's really interesting is part of the is not told is uh, the New Yorkers from MSG came over, bought the team, right, and then right. they they had a vision and they weren't allowed to move it. Herb Cole's like, "I'll throw in a hundred million, but you can't move move the team, <laughs> right?" So they they built the practice facility, they built the new arena, and they, they're NBA champions. But for you to have seen it, it, it wasn't the darkest time when you were there, right? but to see it and now see them as champions and see what that city is going through. What's it like?
3: It's awesome, dude. Like I'm so happy for the community to see 65,000 people in the district, like supporting that team, you know, and also to see like, it's such a likable team, right? Giannis, like oh, what, what, what a, what a human being, let alone like just the amazing player, drew holiday, Chris Middleton. Like these are just like up people playing the game the right way for a community in a, in a city that I really care about something that's not very well known. So you, you mentioned my dad's history with the Bucks. So my mom and dad met through the Bucks. So when my dad was drafted, you know, he got to Milwaukee and said, Hey, any, any nice Jewish girls in town? Like, oh, you should meet Nancy Kahn. So my grandfather on my mom's side was a, the, the original lawyer and, and a part owner of the Bucks. Like this is in the seventies. So like my family's history in Milwaukee goes back 50 years. And in fact, when the Bucks won it in 71, my grandfather got a championship ring. Cause again, he was very closely affiliated with the team for my bar mitzvah. He gifted me that ring. So I have a Bucks championship ring from 1971. So it's actually funny because my dad is in the NBA for 40 years, but I'm the one in my family with a ring, you know, and I remind him of that. He'll say, yeah, I do have a gold medal. I'm just, that's just data sharing out with you. Right. But uh, yeah, man. So like my, my grandparents born and raised in Milwaukee, man, like our roots there are so deep. So, and I have so many dear friends, man. So to see them win it and the way they want it and to see like a city that I care about so much, like have that success, it's just awesome. Just awesome. So exciting. Um,
6: Dan, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you joining me. I can't wait to read this book. I think it's a movie. Um, you. <laughs> I'm, sure you have, I'm sure you have the movie rights to it. <laughs> and the second somebody, somebody in Hollywood reads it, they'll make it into a movie.
3: Well, uh, I appreciate it.
6: And uh, I really appreciate you joining us on the pod.
3: No, thank you, Doug. This is awesome. It's great, you know, spending time and catching up and uh, really appreciate this. Thanks, Dan. You got it, my man. Talk to you soon.
6: Quick reminder, the Doug Gottlieb Show is daily, 3 to 6 Eastern, 12, 3 Pacific on Fox Sports Radio, the iHeartRadio app, Sirius XM 217 and 203. My thanks to Dan Grunfeld for joining us. I I hope you pick up that book. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball.
9: Valentine's Day is almost here, and you know what that means. It's time to make her blush with fresh blooms and gifts from ProFlowers. This year go to ProFlowers.com to use code Crush15 to get 15% off through February 14th on all the best blooms and gifts. See website for details.
2: I'm Diosa, and I'm Mala. We're the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying, a, a podcast. podcast.
0: Welcome to Locatora Radio, season nine. Love, Love at, at first, first listen. listen.